Welcome to the Good Chemistry Podcast. I'm Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Ethan Russo. Ethan is a board-certified neurologist, psychopharmacology researcher, and founder-CEO of a cannabis science company. He has previously served as the Director of Research and Development for the International Cannabis and Cannabinoids Institute, Senior Medical Advisor to GW Pharmaceuticals, and a number of other positions. Dr. Russo is a well-known researcher in the area of psychopharmacology and cannabis-derived medicine and has published over 50 peer-reviewed research articles. Ethan and I discussed a variety of topics related to medical cannabis and plant medicine, including what's known about various plant cannabinoids and terpenes, the so-called entourage effect, which is the idea that multiple compounds can have interactive or synergistic effects compared to single drugs, and his views on the legal cannabis industry. As always, if you enjoy this content, please like, share, or subscribe. And if you're interested in supporting the podcast further, please consider signing up as a Good Chemistry patron on Patreon. Patrons help keep the podcast ad-free for as long as possible. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Ethan Russo. Ethan Russo, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. How are you and where are you? Uh, well, I, uh, I'm at my home, my home office on Vashon Island near Seattle. Cool. Yeah, that's that's close to me. Um, for those who don't know, I'm in Seattle as well. And we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today related to cannabis, cannabinoids, terpenes, the entourage effect, all that stuff, uh, medical cannabis. Can you start out by just briefly describing your technical background? Sure. Well, I'm a neurologist by training, but uh, for the last 30 years, I uh, have been heavily involved in medicinal plant research, uh, really accelerating after uh, sabbatical in the rainforest in Peru in 1995. Uh, thereafter, I quickly became embroiled in the cannabis controversy and tried to do uh, clinical studies uh, through the FDA, getting stonewalled initially by the FDA and then by NIDA. Um, but during the, that time, I was learning a great deal about uh, cannabis and the endocannabinoid system. Uh, and it led to my first publication in the journal Pain in 1998. Uh, and uh, began my association with GW Pharmaceuticals the year they began. Uh, subsequently, in 2003, they asked me to come on full-time as senior medical advisor. Uh, so for the next 11 years, I was involved in the uh, Sativex and Epidiolex development programs. So I've worked in the cannabis space for 25 years and culminating this past year and uh, the beginning of my own uh, intellectual property holding company called Credo Science, and we're also involved in uh, creating cannabis-based formulations for industry, whether it be supplement companies or hopefully eventually a pharmaceutical company as well. Wow, that's so. It's a fascinating background. There's uh, a number of things I want to go back to. I think later in the discussion about about your background. But you mentioned Sativex and Epidiolex. And so to start with, I thought maybe you could describe what are cannab plant cannabinoids. Let's just start with the two big ones, THC, CBD, to set the stage for everyone. And then can you talk about Sativex and Epidiolex and what those you know official approved medications sure. actually are? 
So cannabinoids uh, initially referred to substances that the plant cannabis sativa makes. Uh, and there have been upwards of 150 of these identified, the two best known being THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, uh, which is the main psychoactive ingredient uh, of cannabis. Uh, and it works analogously to endogenous cannabinoids, endocannabinoids, uh, particularly anandamide, in that it likewise is a weak partial agonist on uh, the CB1 and CB2 receptors. Um, cannabidiol, in contrast, is a non-intoxicating cannabinoid, but which is nonetheless psychoactive. And this is a misconception. I see a great deal in the literature, let alone in common parlance. Uh, CBD is definitely psychoactive because it has strong anti-anxiety and antipsychotic effects among others. Also very useful in allaying side effects associated with THC. Beyond that, there are probably 10 other cannabinoids in the plant about which we have at least partial pharmacological information, uh, but that leaves about uh, upwards of 140 where we just don't have enough information. And that's one of the gaps in our knowledge that I'd like to see fill, fulfilled in coming years. Um, so in addition to plant-based cannabinoids or phytocannabinoids, um, there are rare examples of other plants that have cannabinoid-like activity, or specifically, cannabigerol has been found in a South, uh, South African plant. Uh, so that's CBG. Yes, yeah, CBG. So that's uh, the plant is, uh, uh, oh, let me think a minute, um, Helichrysum umbraculigerum. Uh, sometimes the neurons don't connect uh, too fast, <laughs> um, but that's in trace amounts there. In general, mm. the best source of plant cannabinoids is cannabis. So in addition, we have what I mentioned before, endocannabinoids, uh, mm -hmm. cannabinoids within our bodies. Um, and there are also synthetic cannabinoids like uh, synthetic form of THC and Marinol uh, called Dronabinol, uh, Nabilone, which is a uh, a, an analog of uh, THC, uh, and then there are many others whose structures can be quite different. Um, so those are the three classes of cannabinoids. Mm -hmm. So, you know, cannabis is Schedule One controlled substance in the United States, so it's highly regulated, but we do have a small number in the U.S. and, and in other countries, it depends, that of medications that are approved and they're made of cannabinoids. The two, yes. the two that come to mind are Sativex and Epidiolex. So can you just talk about what those medications are and what exactly is inside of them? Sure. So these are both uh, medicines that are cannabis-derived. Um, Sativex is a combination of two cannabis extracts, one high in THC and one high in CBD. So it comes out as basically about a one-to-one -one mixture with a smattering of terpenoids as well. Uh, and this is in a spray that's sprayed in the mouth uh, to the um, mucous mucosal surfaces. Uh, that is approved in 30 countries for treatment of spasticity and multiple sclerosis, and also approved in Canada for treatment of cancer, pain. Um, uh, right. Then, um, Epidiolex is basically a purified CBD extract. It's about 97% pure CBD. 
In addition, uh, in the U.S., we have a couple of other medicines not used so much. Uh, one is synthetic THC or Marinol, uh, which is approved in 1985. Uh, and then its counterpart, Nabilone, which is a semi-synthetic, uh, longer-acting, 10 times more potent. Um, but uh, again, neither one of these has uh, really gained a lot of traction in the clinical realm. Uh, when people have the opportunity to try both, invariably, they prefer herbal forms of cannabis or these extracts. So Sativex, it has a, it's THC and CBD. It's about a one-to-one ratio. Right. It's made, so it's actually a plant extract that they're combining. Exactly. Yes. And then that's used to treat spasticity for multiple sclerosis. That's used to treat um, some symptoms related to cancer. And then Epidiolex is the one that people have probably heard about in the last year right. or two. That's the epilepsy treatment. Sure. Now, specifically, that one is approved in the U.S., um, for three indications now. In 2017, it was approved for two uh, forms of epilepsy called Lennox-Gastaut syndrome and Dravet syndrome. These are two severe epilepsy syndromes, mainly of uh, children, but also some surviving adults. And uh, this past year, it was also approved for seizures associated with tuberous sclerosis. Um, now, th that because it's a purified medicine and CBD is not enormously potent on its own, uh, usually very high doses of that are required. And that's a factor in this being a very expensive medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, if someone were paying for it, it's estimated that the annual cost uh, for a patient with one of these severe epilepsy syndromes would be $32,500. So in a single dose of Epidiolex, about how, how many milligrams of CBD would be in that? Um, I think it's 100 milligrams per milliliter, but uh, people are using large amounts, 1,500, 2,000 milligrams a day. Mm -hmm. uh, those, it, it's a liquid, and at those mm -hmm. higher doses, uh, there can be some associated diarrhea. Uh, there have been some drug-drug interactions. Most of the patients with these syndromes are on polypharmacy, multiple drugs. Mm -hmm. um, so, again, because of the high milligram amounts, of CBD, there is the potential for drug-drug interactions. So at least for epilepsy, you need those high doses. And then the flip side, so you've got this medical application for CBD that's been approved, but then CBD is this health and culture phenomenon right now. If you walk into a dispensary or you walk into Walgreens, you can buy CBD products. These typically have five, maybe 10, maybe 15 or 20 milligrams per dose, whether it's an edible, whether it's in a tincture or whatever. So what do we know about dose and the effects of CBD? Are those low doses likely to be doing anything for people? Uh, <clears throat> well, you know, there are various factors in uh, ascertaining whether medicine is effective. It really ultimately is up to the consumer to decide. Uh, for better or worse, uh, as I mentioned, CBD is a very versatile medicine, but it is not potent. You usually need a lot. Um, even in something less serious uh, in terms as compared to epilepsy is treatment of uh, anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and we know from experiments, mainly done in Brazil, that you need a few hundred milligrams of, uh, of CBD to treat anxiety effectively on its own. Now, uh, its strength is really uh, 
in herbal uh, preparations or in extracts where there's some combination of CBD with THC. I like to say that there's nothing that CBD does that won't be enhanced by at least having a tiny amount of THC. Um, so the two synergize um, together. They, they work as an ensemble uh, that's better than either one alone. Uh, THC on its own is a lousy drug that's poorly tolerated. Um, yeah. So, so let's unpack that a little bit for people because I hear that all the time, especially in, in the cannabis community, that CBD needs a little bit of THC to work. Now, is, can, you, can you differentiate between that statement and, say, the ability of CBD to mitigate some of THC's side effects? Is, for, is it true that CBD can't do anything without a little bit of THC? Uh, no, no. Yeah. It's been proven uh, to the satisfaction of the FDA that high doses of CBD are effective at treating these serious forms of epilepsy. Full stop. Mm -hmm. Okay. But again, uh, Pamplona did a meta-analysis and showed that uh, at least anecdotally, because these weren't uh, randomized controlled trials, when people are using CBD as an extract, uh, you seem to get similar results in these serious seizure syndromes with about 20% of the dose that's required when it is pure um, and with fewer drug-drug interactions. Um, so again, this is an area of controversy uh, you know, they're vested interests on both sides. I'm a firm believer mm -hmm. in whole plant and extracts and the entourage, um, whereas, uh, you know, it's expedient for some people to think in terms of synthetics or single molecules mm -hmm. uh, as treatments. Uh, but when we're dealing with complex human disorders, it's not always and most often is not sufficient. Um, to have one target and one molecule treating it. Rather, um, often we need multiple drugs. Uh, fortunately for mankind, cannabis is polypharmacy in one agent. Um, it evolved with this combination of different uh, chemical components uh, that seem to work in concert very well for a wide variety of conditions tapping into the endocannabinoid system and other mechanisms. Um, so uh, again, I'm a firm believer in this synergy or boosting of effect, and that can consist of um, additive effects towards the same end because THC and CBD both have some pain relieving properties. Mm -hmm. They're both anti-inflammatory, but again, uh, CBD has this wonderful ability to reduce side effects of THC, including anxiety, panic, rapid heart rate, uh, and it will do that at lower doses uh, than the several hundred milligrams that we're mentioning in relation to its use uh, mm -hmm. for single conditions. I should add at this point that using 800 to 1,000 milligrams of CBD as a pure compound a day has also been proven in schizophrenia and two randomized controlled trials, phase two. Um, so yeah, it is a proven efficacy. It's just that we have gas station CBD mm -hmm. and um, online CBD. And as you mentioned, a lot of these preparations really don't have enough 
that we would think that uh, they're really doing the job. If, however, people take them and feel better, they're going to continue to buy them. Mm -hmm. uh, now, how much of that is placebo effect? Well, uh, probably a good amount. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, people use what helps them. Uh, so it's a complex issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot I want to go into on this stuff. Let's let's unpack some of the basic biology a little bit more. You were talking about polypharmacy. Can you right. describe what that is a little bit more with respect maybe to CBD and how many different receptors it touches? Sure. So polypharmacy, this means uh, more than one drug. Um, uh, there are established about 30 mechanisms of action of CBD. Uh, it doesn't act, interestingly, it doesn't act directly on the CB1 receptor like uh, THC. However, it acts on what's called an allosteric site as a negative allosteric modulator. This means it changes the conformation of the main receptor and makes the binding of THC a little bit harder. Now, you would think that that would detract from the clinical efficacy of THC when in fact it doesn't. Um, so somehow this complex relationship that nature has produced um, is very beneficial. And again, has led to a combination, uh, THC and CBD, herbal combination, in Sativex that's approved in 30 countries just outside the U.S., Mm -hmm. um, so, so CB1, that's the receptor in the brain and the body that's primarily responsible for the psychoactive effects of THC. Correct. CBD has a very different relationship to that receptor. It will bind to the receptor in a different way. It will prevent THC from interacting with that receptor. And this is at least part of the synergy or the interaction that can happen for THC and CBD. Yes, that's, that's quite true. Now, in addition to that, CBD is an agonist, a stimulator of a different receptor, the TRPV1 receptor, which is the same place where capsaicin, the active ingredient, the hot stuff in chili peppers works. Now, this is a receptor related to pain, temperature control, uh, et cetera. And it's also uh, in proper doses can affect anxiety in the brain. Now, unlike capsaicin and the chili peppers, CBD uh, is not caustic. It doesn't produce a burning uh, feeling. Uh, but like capsaicin, when there's enough of it, it can desensitize the receptor, which is mm. helpful in pain control. Um, so that's another mechanism. Additionally, a lot of the uh, benefits of CBD seem to derive from its effect on a, a third receptor, uh, which is serotonin 1A receptor. Uh, this is the basis for its uh, benefits and anxiety, uh, but also uh, has proved to be the way that it treats nausea and vomiting. Uh, it also reduces brain damage uh, related to hepatic encephalopathy when people's livers have gone bad and they get too much ammonia in the circulation. Uh, that's toxic to the brain, but some of the damage can be allayed uh, by CBD. There's also activity um, uh, related to, what, about 27 other items. Um, the more we dig, the more we see. Um, so CBD is just doing a lot of different stuff. You bet. Now, generally, 
Um, that's what is called the proverbial dirty drug, meaning mm -hmm. that it doesn't do one thing. You know, so it's unlike some of the biological agents where it's an antibody. It's designed to take something out, um, uh, you know, to reduce function of a specific target. This is very different. Uh, it's working on many different targets. Um, and usually that produces more side effects. What's unique about CBD is despite all these mechanisms of action, um, almost none of those activities are bad for you. Um, CBD is a remarkably benign drug um, in terms of its side effect profile. Uh, so this is all a good thing. One other mechanism of action I should report is um, CBD also inhibits FA, fatty acid aminohydrolase, which is the enzyme that breaks down anandamide, the endocannabinoid uh, in the brain and elsewhere. So it may boost what we call endocannabinoid tone, um, the overall activity of the endocannabinoid system, which is generally going to be a protective mechanism uh, in keeping our physiology in balance. Um, so over time, with this boosting uh, of endocannabinoid tone, uh, it's generally going to be helpful in a large variety of disturbances, diseases. And so you mentioned also Marinol, synthetic THC. That's been around for a while, but it hasn't really caught on. It's not really used very much. So what's, what's going on there? How does the synthetic THC compare to other forms of cannabis? Okay. Well, it is THC without everything else. And as I mentioned, um, pure THC is a lousy drug. It doesn't make people happy. It makes them dysphoric, unhappy. Hmm. Also, people who take it feel very scattered, uh, hard to think, hard to function. Um, it was proven effective in treating nausea um, associated with chemotherapy and was approved by the FDA clear back in 1985. Then in 1992, it was also approved for AIDS wasting associated with HIV. Um, but um, it's never been popular. It's never been had an active uh, following on the black market such that uh, by 1999, it was rescheduled from Schedule 2 to Schedule 3, less restrictive because there wasn't uh, evidence of its abuse. Um, even people who are accustomed to cannabis who try Marinol uh, tend to find it hard to handle and don't like it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not often used in clinical medicine. Um, right. So basically, it's THC without anything else. It doesn't have benefit of CBD with it to allay side effects or terpenoids uh, that contribute to the beneficial properties and also uh, reduce the adverse event profile. Um, right. Interesting. So pure THC is behaving differently, presumably because it doesn't have these other compounds around that are interacting with it in some way. People don't tolerate it as well. And we know that there's a lot of other stuff in cannabis. One more question before we go to the herbal side of things. You mentioned that Epidiolex was, I think, 97% CBD. So do we know what the other 3% is, or at least whether or not the other 3% is efficacious with respect to its epilepsy treatment? 
Yeah, I'm going to say probably not. I mean, there's just a trace of THC. Mm-hmm. Um, FDA remains a bit THC phobic, at least uh, in cannabis-based medicines. Um, there's probably a trace amount of other cannabinoids and terpenoids, but it's pretty stripped down. Okay. So we've got Epidiolex, that's mostly CBD. We've got Sativex, that's THC, CBD. We've touched on this idea that there are interactive effects between THC and CBD. We've discussed Marinol synthetic THC and how it doesn't behave the same as herbal, you know, plant-derived THC. We've touched a little bit on some of the other minor cannabinoids. Can you start talking a little bit about this concept of the entourage effect? And maybe let's let's actually back into it from the plant's point of view. So are there examples of entourage effects in nature? And why would a plant be making a, a cocktail of stuff? Okay, we, let's use a different plant as an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, ginkgo biloba, traditionally used uh, to treat dementia and elderly people. Um, this is derived uh, from leaves of the ginkgo biloba tree. Um, it is normally, there's a thing called EGB761, uh, extract of ginkgo biloba 761, mm-hmm. which has been used in most of the randomized controlled trials uh, going back over the last three decades. Um that is standardized to three different sets of components, not single molecules, but classes of components. Um, Because there's never been established that ginkgo biloba has a single active ingredient. Rather, it is a combination of these three sets of components. Now, some time ago in France, there was a single molecule derived from ginkgo biloba that was used to treat uh, septic shock. This is where somebody has bacteria circulating uh, through the body and they're in shock. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so this is potentially life-threatening. That drug was approved, but it was found that it was not as effective as the extract. Um, So again, it's the combination of three ingredient sets of ingredients uh, that makes ginkgo biloba what it is. Um, yeah, I'll give another example. Um, another herbal agent, uh, Hypericum um, perforatum, uh, St. John's wort, is used to treat depression. And it's been about equally effective to some of the conventional antidepressants. Uh, again, uh, it's unclear what the active ingredient is. Um, uh, one of the putative ones uh, is called hyperforin. This is a weird molecule. It's very two-dimensional. Most mm-hmm. molecules are 3D. This is in uh, just a flat plane. When this is isolated, it is highly unstable. Hmm. Um, it needs to be kept under liquid nitrogen to stay together. However, when you just go through a normal extraction of the plant and hyperforin is in it, it stays stable. The plant knows how to keep it together, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's an, if I may say, an innate wisdom. Um, I should mention at this point that throughout human history, um, plants have been our medicine and remain so for many people around the world, particularly indigenous groups. 
It's only in the last 75 years that synthetic chemistry mm -hmm. uh, has come to the fore as a provider of our medicine. Uh, sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not, uh, right? Interesting. So, back, so, yes. so, so the, a plant might make uh, a host of compounds either because there's maybe interactive effects, um, which, which we can get into, but, but in this last case, it might purely just be to stabilize the, the one active compound that's there because it, it'll literally just break down in the face of the, the elements. Sure, exactly. Another example, traditional Chinese medicine. Typically, traditional Chinese medicine uh, is formed from recipes, not one agent, but it might be 10 or more. Mm -hmm. And typically, if you investigate it, you'll find that maybe three of the 10 ingredients are direct, directly related to the condition you're trying to treat. And then uh, some of the others are to counteract side effects of the first three. And some others uh, may be for stability or taste or mm -hmm. uh, otherwise make it a more acceptable medicine. Um, Cannabis is like traditional Chinese medicine in one plant because of its combination of ingredients. So the entourage effect refers to the idea that you may have a soloist, a sort of active, main active ingredient. Um, and then you have these other things which seemingly don't do a lot on their own. Uh, but when they're present, uh, they boost the overall effect. Uh, and this is called synergy. Uh, synergy is the idea that one plus one equals four rather than two. Uh, synergy can be in the form of boosting of a specific therapeutic uh, approach like treating pain, mm -hmm. but it also can be reduction of side effects. Um, so there are many examples um, for cannabis that support the idea of the entourage effect and synergy. Um, we can go through those if you like. Yeah, let's let's get to that. Um, are there any examples of this in what we would call, you know, traditional pharmaceutical medicine, where you have a main, one soloist, the main active ingredient, plus something else to boost it or, or stabilize it? Sure. Um, okay, let's use the example in treating Parkinson's disease. Um, among other things, Parkinson's disease manifests uh, a deficit of dopamine in the brain. Um, now, there is a very common drug, Cinemet, uh, but it's a combination drug of two, uh, two things. Uh, one is L-DOPA, uh, which is a precursor to dopamine, but normally when this is given, it's inactivated out in the body before it can collect in the brain. Hmm. So it has to be provided with a second component called carbidopa which inhibits the breakdown of the L-DOPA so it can get uh, turned into dopamine in the brain and supplement what's missing. It's kind of, it's uh, kind so of, like, a, kind of like ayahuasca or something. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's another example. So there um, you've got uh, the real psychedelic component is dimethyltryptamine, mm -hmm. but you can't absorb it. Uh, it's not orally it's active. Orally, it's inactivated. Uh, before it gets to the brain. So it has to be given with harm, harming and harmaline alkaloids, uh, MEO inhibitors that prevent its breakdown. It gets to the brain and, and becomes active. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's actually a, a, almost a perfect analogy in, 
you, you know, the, the Western approach, you have this treatment for Parkinson's and it's literally an active drug plus another drug that prevents its breakdown. So it can actually get to the brain. And in the Amazon, you know, that's, that is what ayahuasca is. It's an active drug that will get broken down, except in the presence of this other drug that allows it to get to the brain. So, right. so this combinatorial approach, um, it, I mean, it's, it's common, it's been used throughout human history. Before we get to the entourage effect per se, can you maybe talk about the cannabis plant and its natural history? What, why is this plant producing cannabinoids and terpenes and, and what are terpenes exactly? Sure. Well, the plant isn't making these cannabinoids to get us high. Um, so as much as we'd like to anthropomorphize, um, the plant is 30 million years old. Uh, the endocannabinoid system is 600 million years old. Humans are under a million years old. Um, so that's the order of things. <laughs> it's just a happy accident of nature that this has provided uh, recreation and uh, medicine uh, for people. So we're making use of that. Why does the plant expend all this metabolic energy to make all this stuff? Well, it's for ecological reasons. Um, uh, cannabinoids, uh, many of them uh, perform activity in the plant in reducing ultraviolet light damage, uh, preventing predation by insects. Um, and uh, this is also true of the terpenoids, that cannabinoids and terpenoids are produced in the same part of the plant, the glandular trichomes. These are like uh, clear spheres on top of stalks that are concentrated in the unfertilized female flowering tops. Um, the terpenoids, uh, again, are provide an ecological defense for the plant and they can prevent fungal infection. Uh, they can prevent bacterial infection. They can either repel insects or attract beneficial insects. Um, and uh, these will vary according to the genetics and the environmental conditions. Um, so cannabis, as well as other plants, can change the components that are produced, uh, the terpenoid entourage, uh, depending on what's eating it, so to speak. Um, and we know that uh, plants can actually, through their root systems, can send signals to surrounding plants that they're under attack and they will increase their production of these defense compounds. Hmm. So there is wisdom there. Plants don't pick up and walk away when there's a threat. They learn uh, to combat this through uh, biochemical warfare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they're, they're really almost natural pharmaceutical factories that have evolved to produce specific combinations because they actually do things in combination. Right. So talking about cannabis and the entourage effect and terpenes. So we've already talked about CBD and THC. There's this interactive effect with THC and CBD. We have a pharmacological basis for that one because THC is this partial agonist or activator of CB1. CBD is this negative allosteric modulator. So there's, there's a literal interaction at a particular site. They do other things as well. Are there any known uh, pharmacological interactions between any of the cannabinoids and the cannabis terpenes? Uh, sure, many. You know, I could provide a lot of examples. Uh, again, it's easiest to uh, talk in terms of what they do with THC. 
So I've already mentioned THC on its own um, is dysphoric. Uh, people feel very scattered, can't think, can't function as well as they would uh, if they were not under the influence. How do we make that better? Well, the terpenoid effects are specific. Um, let's give some examples. Limonene uh, is one of the terpenes that we'd like to see more of in cannabis. It's not around so much uh, these days. Um, but limonene um, has a, a marked antidepressant effect and brightens uh, the mood um, uh, associated with THC. Um, and is that is that coming to us from clinical work in humans or, or animal studies or both? Uh, well, a combination. Um, a lot of this is uh, human observation, which would be considered anecdotal. Uh, there's studies underway formally now at uh, Johns Hopkins University to look at terpenoid THC interactions. And this would be in a randomized controlled trials with humans with strict psychometric testing uh, to demonstrate the results and hopefully show statistical significance. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, these are observations from people who have tried these combinations. Uh, and we know what limonene does on its own, uh, both in animals and in humans. It has a, a marked antidepressant effect, uh, but this seems to be synergized again uh, by a combination with THC. And it, there's the question, so we'll just, we'll just stay on limonene as an example. So based on the doses that are used in animal studies to see such effects, and based on the typical concentration of limonene in commercial cannabis flower, say, which is going to be, you know, when it's there, it's, it's probably not going to exceed 0.5% of, of the dried weight of the, of the flower. Oh, is that better examples, but yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but like, I guess the question is, are, are the terpene concentrations that you would find in a commercial cannabis product high enough for there to be a plausible uh, ph uh, pharmacological effect? Right. Well, they may be and may not be, but mm -hmm. this is part of the reason that I'm always harping about selective breeding for these components. Mm -hmm. As it stands now, if we're looking at commercial cannabis, the vast majority of what's available is high THC with high myrcene or more recently, uh, CBD with high myrcene. Mm -hmm. But in the latter instance, that's produced this misconception that CBD is sedating. It's not. At low or moderate doses, CBD is alerting. Uh, there are people in California now that are using CBD instead of coffee in the morning. At extreme doses, it can be sedating. Um, but um, when, when myrcene is combined with THC, it's productive of a phenomenon called couch lock, uh, which is basically what it sounds like. People use it and they're immobilized. They can't get up. Mm -hmm. um, now, that's fine if you're in pain and need to sleep, but it's not good if you've got mm -hmm. a chronic pain condition. Well, can we, can we actually unpack that one? Because that's one that I hear a lot. Mercy makes you sleepy. Uh, Mercy is responsible for couch lock. Um, I, I hear a lot that it, it enhances the psychoactivity of THC by uh, affecting blood-brain barrier permeability, but I've never been able to find any evidence for those claims. Okay. Again, uh, kind of thing that hopefully will be proven in these formal studies, and this is an NIH-supported study, but it's going to take some 
couple of years yet to get the results. Mm -hmm. Here's what we know. Myrcene in animal testing is sedating. It also is analgesic, which is helpful, painkiller, but it is uh, pain relieving effects are blocked by naloxone, uh, the same drug that's used to rescue people from opioid overdoses. So it's a narcotic type of uh, effect. That effect, again, anecdotally, is markedly increased in conjunction with THC. So most modern types of cannabis uh, have a lot of THC and a lot of myrcene and tend to be very sedating. This is quite different to how cannabis was typically a few decades ago. Admittedly, THC amounts were not as high, but that really doesn't explain things. Uh, the profiles of plants then were quite different to what's happened now um, in the pursuit of ever higher amounts of THC. Yeah, do, do we, uh, what do we know there? So 10, well, 20, 50 years ago. Well, analysis, but I can tell you that uh, people my age uh, <laughs> will all uniformly attest to this, uh, that cannabis was different then. Um, now, uh, again, even though the average potency of uh, with THC is much higher now than it was then, there were always high potency uh, varieties available, mm -hmm. uh, in, even in the olden days. Um, you know, it's been hundreds of years that uh, people in India have known how to select uh, cannabis and um, make sure that. Uh, it's ganja, meaning un unfertilized female uh, flowers, uh, which markedly increases the potency. Mm -hmm. So, uh, staying on the terpenes for a while. So, we mentioned myrcene, limonene. What are some of the other big ones that would be found in, in typical commercial cannabis? Um, sure. So, uh, an example I like a lot, um, a very demonstrable effect for people who have tried it, um, is the combination of THC and alpha-pinene. Alpha-pinene sounds familiar because it comes from pine needles. Um, in our area of the world, uh, when one wants to feel rejuvenated, you take a walk in the woods on coniferous forests. And in the air, the headspace volatiles consist of a lot of alpha-pinene. Alpha-pinene is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor it decreases the breakdown of acetylcholine, the memory molecule in the brain. In combination with THC, it will reduce short-term memory impairment. That's a notorious side effect of THC. So this is responsible for uh, people losing their train of thought and laughing about it, as is typical in um, movies about cannabis, uh, you know, say Cheech and Chong. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of phenomenon. Um, and so, so, and where does that come from? Is that, is that another thing where it's, it's anecdotal at this point? Uh, well, you know, for people who've tried it, uh, the results are pretty uniformly in favor of the idea that it happens again to convince the scientific community. Uh, we need, uh, double-blind, randomized controlled trials. But again, those are going to occur, uh, and I'm confident in the results. Interesting. 
Um, what about uh, beta caryophylline? That's one sure. that I think is interesting and you hear about quite a bit. Right. So beta caryophylline um, is uh, often the most uh, abundant terpenoid that's uh, found in extracts of cannabis. It's a higher molecular weight, so it doesn't volatilize quite as easily. Uh, it's a fascinating agent. Um, we know that it's been used in other plants uh, traditionally in South America, such as copaiba balsam as a treatment for inflammation, fibrosis, etc. Uh, so it's a well-known anti-inflammatory agent. But um, your Gerich and his group in Switzerland about 15 years ago demonstrated that it's also a cannabinoid because it is selective uh, as an agonist for the CB2 receptor, the non-psychoactive receptor that's involved in pain and inflammation mm -hmm. uh, and treatment of fibrosis. Uh, so this is a very versatile medical agent on, you know, uh, THC works on CB1 and CB2. Uh, Caryophylline is selective for CB2. Um, there's a lot of research on CB2 agonists right now, synthetic ones. None of them made it to the market, but yet we have this natural compound that happens to be in cannabis as well as black pepper um, that uh, can be very therapeutic, mm -hmm. natural, uh, no real side effects to speak of at reasonable doses and uh, it should be more utilized. So you mentioned black pepper and that brings me to another uh, series of questions for you because there's this myth in the cannabis community, let's say, where if you get too high, you inhale black pepper and that'll help calm you down. And some people attribute that to CB2 and caryophylline. Does that make any sense? Well, I've written about this um, in a paper 10 years ago, Taming THC. There are various components in black pepper. Uh, also, there are ancient texts that refer to black pepper um, uh, and uh, pine nuts. Pine nuts uh, contain alpha-pinene. Um, these were used as cannabis overdose antidotes uh, in ancient times. Um, so we have a combination of ancient anecdotal evidence, modern anecdotal evidence. We have a lot of animal work uh, that supports these concepts. Now all we need is the blinded human data um, that hopefully will clinch the uh, story. Uh, right. Um, but why, why would, I guess in principle, why would a CB2 agonist decrease the psychoactivity of something if it's coming from CB1 activation? I uh, can't answer fully, but um, we know that CB2 agonists have been used uh, uh, to treat uh, addiction to other compounds, so specifically cocaine in animals. Um, mm -hmm. And there's every reason to think that caryophylline could work similarly. Interesting. And uh, a related question here that that actually comes up a lot I, I was surprised how much this came up is well on the one hand there's this question of the route of administration so uh, are these things purely going to be active through inhalation or can they be orally active and then the related question is are are there any foods that contain terpenes that would you know, eating them would affect the level of psychoactivity quite possibly yeah so let's go through things First, 
these are going to be most active by inhalation. Now, that doesn't have to be smoking. It's certainly certainly preferable as vaporization due to mm-hmm. less, um, less pulmonary side effects. Um, I don't recommend smoking anything. Um, they are orally active, but less so. Um, a lot of these substances can undergo very rapid uh, first-pass metabolism in the liver, uh, which will take them out of the running. Um, but it, it's erroneous to say that they're inactive orally. Another route of administration, unlike the cannabinoids, which really don't effectively penetrate the skin, the terpenoids do. Um, we have uh, human data from uh, years ago showing uh, serum levels of terpenoids uh, within an hour um, uh, of terpenoids applied to the skin as essential oils, uh, for example. Uh, These will circulate, some will get into the brain. So when people have an aromatherapy massage, it's not just the massage that makes them feel good. They may benefit from absorption and even be able to taste some of the components that were in the essential oil mix. Um, right. Interesting. Yeah. And for those who aren't familiar with cannabis or, or, or this type of thing, this is literally the essential oil of the plant. So this is very oily, greasy compounds that are fat soluble and will, in this case, absorb directly through your skin. Right. So, okay. We've covered, we've covered a lot of stuff. Um, there's still a lot I want to talk about. What about, you know, I want to spend some time talking about dose, both, uh, and let's focus mostly on the cannabinoids um, and THC in particular. So there are a lot of highly dose-dependent effects for for THC and for cannabis. Can you unpack a little bit of what's going on there in terms of the biology? Why is it that a low dose versus a high dose can have such a different effect? Well, uh, first, we need to introduce the concept of called a biphasic dose response. Uh, Cannabinoids are well known through both human experience and animal testing to have possibly opposite effects depending on the extremes of the dosage range. What that means is you'll observe one effect um, at a low dose and possibly an opposite effect at a very high dose, which Mm -hmm. would be considered toxic. yeah, and the same thing can apply to therapeutics. Let me give an example, and this is an entourage example as well. In animals, if we're looking at CBD as a pure compound, a little bit may not treat pain in the animal. When you get to the right dose, it is effective in treating pain. If you go higher, you lose the effect. Um, when the same doses of CBD are used as an extract from cannabis, the curve doesn't go up and down, it rather goes up and stay, keeps going up. In other words, as preservation of the pain relieving response, um, it becomes linear rather than this biphasic response. Um, so uh, there are also examples of, um, you know, too much cannabis can produce nausea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so too much THC. Uh, low doses are well known as an antiemetic, uh, one that reduces uh, nausea and vomiting. Too much uh, can have the opposite effect. And this is why dosing is so critical. 
the correct dose of a cannabis-based medicine is the lowest dose that's going to produce the desired therapeutic effect without producing side effects. And that should be that knowledge should be gained slowly through what we call dose titration. Very basically, um, low doses of cannabis um, with THC would be in the range of 2.5 milligrams or less. That's a threshold dose. Many people will feel it, some will not. Five milligrams is a moderate dose. Almost everyone will feel it unless they're highly tolerant. Um, 10 milligrams, uh, at once for the naive patient is too much. 15 uh, milligrams can produce really toxic effects, including um, possibility of delusions, paranoia, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, but, so when you say toxic, you mean uh, mental side effects as opposed to physical bodily toxicity. Well, sure, but people can get sick as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, rapid heart rate is uh, yeah. something it's also associated with that, a panic reaction. So it's, it's not just psychological uh, effects. Mm-hmm. So, so for like a cannabis edible, because this problem is so pervasive to the uninitiated, the typical dose in a dispensary that you see per edible for THC is 10. That would be the, the most common dose that I see out there, 10 milligrams of THC. So you're saying that if you've never tried cannabis before, you've never tried an edible, that is definitely too high. Yeah, it is. I mean, at most, someone should try a quarter of it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they need to wait at least three hours. Um, oral absorption can be quite erratic. Um, it's going to be better if it's taken with some other food, but 10 for the uninitiated is too much. Now, the problem is, um, in some places, you see edibles um, so a single brownie could t- contain 100 milligrams of THC, which is a recipe for disaster uh, for the uninitiated. Um, yeah, and the, I think that that just shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people need to be very judicious um, when using edibles for a couple of reasons. One is um, you're eating something that may be delicious, uh, neglecting that. Uh, the amount you take should be really related to the, the dose that's available, not how, how great it tastes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a pitfall. Um, the other thing is you just can't tell for a long while. Um, and there are innumerable instances of somebody tries an edible in an hour, they don't feel anything, take the same amount again, and then they're way too high. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a problem. So, you know, we've talked about the entourage effect and some of these these potential interactions with different cannabinoids and terpenes. We've talked about the importance of dose. We were just getting into edibles and how you know there, there's products available today commercially that contain extraordinary doses. Let's talk a little bit about the consumer experience today. So you walk into a dispensary, and no matter where you are, you can be in any state that has a, a state legal dispensary system. You walk into a dispensary; it's going to be some f- some version of the following. There's going to be hundreds, if not thousands of products. There's going to be all kinds of strains, right? You're going to walk in and you're going to see all of these different cannabis strains. And the bud tender is very likely to tell you that there's two or three types of cannabis strain. There's the indicas and the sativas. If they're particularly uh, 
into cannabis, they might even try and throw some other knowledge at you. So for example, I'm starting to hear bud tenders say, uh, indicas make you sleepy. And the reason for that is they have more mercine. Sativas make you excited. And the reason for that is any number of things that I hear. Less THC, more THC, some CBD. I, I mean, I hear everything. So what is your general viewpoint on the way that cannabis flower is classified and talked about in the commercial setting today? Nonsense. <laughs> and can you just kind of unpack maybe maybe the history there? So so what is let's let's just tell people what is the notion of an indica and a sativa? Do we know where that comes from? And we know where it comes from, but it's been bastardized in modern par- parlance. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's break it down. Um, Linnaeus um, designated cannabis as cannabis sativa. But he didn't originate the name. It was used for at least 250 years before him by Landhart Fuchs and others. But we're Linnaeus's mid uh, 18th century. So cannabis sativa means cultivated cannabis. Um, 25 years later in France, uh, Lamarck described what he thought was a different species, cannabis indica. Mm-hmm. Now. I can show you pictures of the exact plants that are these supposed to, supposed to correspond to. So Lamarck's cannabis indica was bushier, but had narrow leaflets. Okay. In modern parlance, what people refer to as indica um, are Afghan type plants. They're short, meter or less. They have very broad leaflets, very dark. Um, and they have a particular uh, chemical profile. Um, but uh, the problem in taxonomy, what a thing is called in botany is it's ever-changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to say if you have 12 uh, botanical taxonomists, you'll have 25 different opinions. <laughs> uh, this is a, a riff on an old Yiddish proverb. Um, but um, quite truthfully, uh, what we've got now are these descriptions of uh, indica and sativa that have no relation to what the plant looks like or its biochemical contents. Also, I'm going to pick at the term strain. There are no strains in plants. What we should talk about in relation to cannabis is chemovars, chemical varieties. That's what matters in terms of the effects that people are going to get from a particular uh, variety of cannabis. Um, strain applies to bacteria and viruses. You hear the word a lot now in relation to varying strains of COVID-19, well, uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus itself. COVID-19 is the disease caused by it. Um, I really think uh, bud tenders and everyone should avoid the terms uh, sativa and indica. It is better to have a description of what's in the plant, Mm -hmm. its cannabinoid profile, its terpenoid profile, also descriptions of what consumers have said in relation to its use. Um, So um, is it innervating? Is it sedating? Uh, Does it brighten mood? Um, is it contemplative? Uh, does it aid sleep? What are the effects that a population of people have noticed that seem to be the common threads? 
Mm-hmm. And do you think there's, so, so essentially what you've just said, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is the, the sort of two key things you'd want to know about a product to ascertain what its effects might be are one, its chemical composition, how much THC does it have? What's its terpene profile? And two, what have other people said the effects were when they tried the same thing? And that makes a lot of sense on the one hand. So the chemistry perfectly makes sense. The, I guess the key issue there is that information is more or less completely unavailable other than the THC percentage and CBD percentage today. Well, that's a political problem. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm really serious about this. This is the kind of thing that should be mandated. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you buy any other product, you go to the supermarket, you've got thousands of products on the shelves, and it's really simple to pick one up and see, is it organic? What is the list of ingredients? Mm-hmm. Um, is it just stuff that comes from nature or are there a bunch of preservatives and other things that are added? Um, so then the consumer can decide. Now we've got a psychoactive agent. Uh, sold uh, in stores where you may or may not get good advice about what it's all about. And we've got very limited information. Uh, Basically, often you may get uh, how much THC and CBD is in it. I would submit that's wholly inadequate. You need to know the cannabinoid profile, the terpenoid profile, what kind of safety testing has it undergone? Mm -hmm. Has this been proven to be free from pesticides? Uh, How about heavy metal contamination? What about bacterial contamination? Mm -hmm. Now, the downside is all this stuff costs money, uh, and companies who make these materials are not going to spend it if the state uh, doesn't mandate it. Um, But uh, we managed to have consumer protection for a whole range of other products, and there's no reason that uh, less stringent standards should apply to cannabis. Mm -hmm. How do you think, so let, let's hypothetically, let's say we fast forward and, and we do get these mandates, the, you know, it, it's really intuitive for people to, you know, look at a consumer package good and, and see that, okay, it's been tested for heavy metals. That sounds good. It's been tested for pesticides. That sounds good. Um, the average consumer at this point for cannabis has a probably a, a good understanding of THC percentage and, and how that relates to potency. Then you start getting into other cannabinoids and terpenes, and it starts to get very complicated very quickly. So, you know, in your mind, what would be the ideal way to actually communicate this information to the average consumer with no real scientific background? Sure. Well, uh, again, it's uh, best through consumer education. Um, now, that can come from informed uh, bud tender staff. Uh, you know, and it's like anything else. Uh, there's a bell-shaped curve in terms of the advice that people get in that setting. It can be really bad advice. It can be informed advice. People make a big mistake. Um, uh, my son was runner-up for best bud tender in Seattle a few years back. His pet peeve was the average person came in and said, give me the stuff with the highest THC. Mm -hmm. And he would spend a lot of time and effort to try and explain why uh, they should be disabused of this notion. The better question is, what are you looking for in your experience? And that may not come from the highest THC. It may come from a lower THC with a more nuanced profile of other ingredients. How can this be imparted to patients? Well, there are ways. 
Um, one example is the Phytofax report uh, that Mark Lewis, uh, my former colleague, developed. Uh, and it has all the numbers of the cannabinoids and terpenoids in it. Uh, it's got bar graphs showing how much of each thing, but it also has uh, graphics showing uh, tastes and smells associated with it. And most important, what the reactions of consumers have been to it. So uh, again, uh, does it make you sleepy? Does it wake you up? Uh, does it elevate mood? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, this is experiential data from consumers. And I think this kind of thing, it can be presented in one page and it can be explained to people uh, in a reasonable time frame. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> how, how strong do you think the uh, effect of suggestion is with cannabis? Because on the one hand, um, I personally agree with you that the way that terms like indica and sativa are, are used and applied is, is, you know, basically total nonsense in the industry. On the other hand, when you actually go and look at the consumer reviews, and, and you know, I've looked at hundreds of thousands of these, what you tend to find is people say that the indicas are sleepier. And so for, for my money, what's happening is, you know, there's a huge dose dependent effect. There's a wide range of, of potential products out there with different ingredients that we don't know what they are. So you walk into a dispensary, someone says, I want something to make me sleepy. The bud tender is going to say, try an indica because indicas make you sleepy because we just believe that. And then you just go home and consume it until you fall asleep. And then you write a review saying it did in fact make you sleepy. So there's this sort of loop that somehow needs to get broken. Yeah. Yeah. That's valid. Um, People can be really suggestible under the influence of cannabis. If you want to sell the Brooklyn Bridge to somebody, that may be one way to do it. Um, yeah, again, uh, people can be uh, steered in the direction of having an opinion that conforms to what they were told. Um, yeah, it's definitely it. It's one reason that... Um, formal randomized controlled studies of anything that's psychoactive affects the mind are very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, just to give a parallel example, um, most uh, studies of antidepressants show them ineffective. It's about a third of studies that actually show efficacy. Now, the FDA has a rule that you can do any number of studies. You often have to show two or three mm -hmm. that show the benefit. Um, it may shock people uh, to know how many studies of standard antidepressants were done to get a few that worked. Meaning, um, meaning they did a bunch of studies. Some of them didn't show an effect, but you simply don't submit those to the formal process. Is that well, what you're saying? They have to be submitted. They don't get published. Right? They don't get published. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a difference. Yeah. They're technically uh, companies aren't allowed to withhold the data. Mm -hmm. uh, from the FDA. But effectively, if they're not published, no one else ever sees it. That's true. Unless they, you know, make a FOIA submission, Freedom mm -hmm. of Information uh, Act. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting to talk about, and we, we've sort of touched on it a little bit, is the power of suggestion and the placebo effect. Can you actually, you know, as a neurologist, can you actually unpack explicitly for people what is the placebo effect and exactly how powerful is it? Well, it's very powerful. It's gotten to the point that um, it's getting extremely difficult to do 
uh, to show uh, efficacy of a drug uh, as compared to placebo. Um, let's see if we can explain this. Now, this particularly applies to drugs to treat pain mm-hmm. and anything that's psychoactive, antidepressants, anti-anxiety agents. Um, it is uh, the case, okay, let's use cannabis in particular. For better or worse, this has a reputation of being miraculous. Works mm-hmm. for everything. Works great. Works for everybody. Um, and going into a clinical trial, uh, when people are have the potential to be on a miracle drug, true or not, they're always going to hope that that's what they receive and expect that that's what they're going to receive. And it's reflected in the results. Even in a 50-50 split, you're going to get a majority of people who think that they're on the drug and those are going to preferentially be the people that improve. Um, So even drugs that we know work, so to speak, Mm -hmm. uh, may not be able to show salient differences from placebo. And this effect has gotten worse over time (laughs) on the past few decades. Uh, It's getting really difficult to show that a, a good drug works. Uh, when you say the effect is getting worse, are you saying that the actual placebo effects themselves are stronger today than they used to be? That's exactly right. What What would even be the basis for that? That's kind of trippy. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's absolutely true. There are publications on this. Um, uh, again, it's uh, the belief of people. Plus, it depends on study design. Let me give an example. We've got a study of pain. We're working on drug X versus placebo. Mm -hmm. And in the design of the study, people come in, uh, they get a free visit with the herbalist, they get a free massage, um, and they go into the study. And you want to show that drug X is better than placebo. Well, it isn't going to work. People are going to really like going and getting the free massage and consultation with a herbalist or physical therapist. Its ancillary benefits are going to produce a greater placebo effect. Um, So properly done, a study may be, okay, Mrs. Jones, we've tried a variety of medicines that haven't worked. We have a study that we can offer you. Now, to be really honest, We can't say whether this is going to work or not work. It Mm -hmm. may or may not. And then in the study, you give half the people placebo and half drug Y. You don't have massages on the visits. Uh, You may have friendly staff, but they can't, you can't let people talk to each other in the waiting room. Mm -hmm. It's got to be very uh, circumscribed and controlled. Um, so that there aren't undue influences that can increase placebo effect and make it harder to demonstrate what may or may not be really true about the drug. Um, so it's a very complex phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, how it's mediated in the brain, different uh, theories. Some of it may relate to the endocannabinoid system. There also have been theories about relating to endorphins. Uh, endogenous uh, opioids in the body. Um, But it is a very real phenomenon that's become extremely problematic in uh, drug development. Interesting. So it is really a pervasive 
problem. And it's actually, I, I didn't know it was actually getting more difficult with time. Yes, it is. <laughs> interesting. So one of the things that I, I think was very interesting at the beginning that I wanted to circle back to is you're describing your background, trained and, and practiced as a neurologist, so a brain physician for a long time. And you got into cannabis and herbal medicine, it sounded like, by way of a trip you took down to the Amazon. So what, what happened there? Well, a lot of things, but, uh, you know, the interest uh, began before that. When I was a teenager, I uh, was a follower of Yule Gibbons, uh, the guy that did the Grape Nuts commercials. Um, basically, he was a forager and uh, collected plants that could be used uh, to treat various uh, ailments. I used his uh, jewelweed and impatient species uh, to treat poison ivy. It was really effective. So I knew from a young age, there was more than just uh, uh, pharmaceutical medicine. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, this happened because uh, seven years in practice, circa 1990, uh, I got a little bit depressed because I was giving increasingly toxic drugs to my patients with less and less benefit hmm. and thinking of alternatives. Um, but what happened in the rainforest? Well, in the course of uh, two and a half months, uh, we identified uh, 500 different um, herbal agents that were used by the Machiganga tribe to treat various illnesses quite effectively. Uh, many of these were psychoactive. Some were ayahuasca analogs, uh, were used in uh, divination and um, ceremonies. Um, uh, I had the opportunity to test some of these. Um, among the things that we thought would be psychoactive, we had about an 80% hit rate on serotonin receptor activity. So it wasn't just imaginary and there wasn't a placebo effect. On so you were, actually, you were actually testing some of this stuff out? We did subsequently. We didn't get too far with the studies for lack of funding, the same old story. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, yeah, I uh, clearly fell in love with ethnobotany, the study of medicinal plant usage by indigenous people, uh, which remains fascinating. Um, but again, um, may have been a tangent at the time, but I uh, got into cannabis, found it fascinating, and um, 25 years later, here we are. Yeah, so what, um, what are you working on today related to cannabis? Lots of stuff. Uh, with Credo Science, we're looking at uh, cannabis in the endocannabinoid system to try and find solutions to a number of different problems. Um, so we've got a variety of provisional patents uh, related to uh, products that we're develop developing. Um, a couple are diagnostics related to the endocannabinoid system. But we're also looking at therapeutic applications that other people haven't tapped yet. Mm -hmm. um, also industrial applications from uh, cannabis, which is an area that really hasn't been uh, begun to scratch the surface of what can be done. Um, and again, we have a formulation services um, uh, to try and create uh, safer and better cannabis-based medicines. Interesting. So 
in terms of endocannabinoid biology, so we talked about how you know there's there's some chemical diversity in terms of what's in some of these products out there. There is dose dependent effects, so the dose is really going to matter a lot for what you expect or what you feel from a cannabis product. And then there's the endocannabinoid system itself. Can you talk a little bit about how how much the endocannabinoid system actually varies from person to person? Is that going to be a key factor? And and what what kind of innovation is going on there to figure out the the genetics of this? Sure. Well, it's a difficult thing to study, particularly in people, but mm-hmm. yeah, it varies tremendously. We we talked earlier about the concept of endocannabinoid tone. Mm-hmm. So that would be ascertained based on the number and density of the uh, cannabinoid receptors, uh, which is something we can't easily study on uh, the living patient. It also has to do with the amounts of the endogenous cannabinoids, uh, and it also has to do with the activity of the enzymes that make them and break them down. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, uh, I've developed a concept which has gained a lot of traction on the literature uh, called clinical endocannabinoid deficiency, and it's the idea that certain pathological processes are related to deficiency of the endocannabinoid system, most notably uh, migraine, irritable bowel syndrome, and fibromyalgia. Uh, right. So, so the idea is that conditions like that are correlated with endogenous cannabinoid levels that are lower than typical. Yes, that's the theory, and it's borne out to some extent. Uh, to give one very concrete example, um, in migraine, it was shown that there was a very marked decrement in the amount of anandamide in the cerebrospinal fluid that surrounds the spinal cord in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is to a very high level of statistical significance. And it clearly implies, if not proving, uh, that there's an endocannabinoid deficiency associated with migraine. Mm-hmm. I've seen, there are some products out there I've seen where you do like a 23andMe style saliva test. So you spit in a tube, you send it in, they sequence genes related to your endocannabinoid system, uh, you know, and liver enzymes that, that have to do with THC metabolism, CB1 receptor stuff. Is, do you think that those products are on the right track? Is that stuff uh, going to help people actually you know, zoom in on how exactly they might uh, respond to a cannabis product? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Full disclosure, I'm a scientific advisor to Endocanna Health, um, which is one of the companies that does such testing. Um, Yeah, I've seen the results and uh, they seem to shed a lot of light on people's tendency to have certain problems. A concrete example would be the person whose genetic profile suggests that they're susceptible to anxiety would do better um, avoiding high THC products and may do better with higher CBD products. Um, and experientially, this seems to be borne out. Um, right. So I do think it's one of the future approaches for people who are really invested on having full information. This can be uh, quite helpful. Mm-hmm. So, so in some future state, you know, uh, a patient might have this 23andMe style test that says you're less sensitive or more sensitive to THC or some other compound. And then on the flip side, you have some kind of marketplace where the products are available, but they actually have the 
the information one would want to act on that knowledge, which would be the chemistry and and the related information rather than what we have today. Yeah, ideally, that would be uh, the safest and most scientific approach. Interesting. And in terms of, well, I mean, we've talked a lot about THC and CBD. Uh, I think we touched on CBG a little bit. You're starting, I'm starting to hear more and more on the commercial side about minor cannabinoids. And you know, a lot of it is, it's tough, I think, for the average person to disentangle the facts from the hype. So can we go through some of the, the major minor cannabinoids and what we actually know about them? So CBG, sure. THCV, CBN, I think are the big three here. Right. Okay. Let's uh, start with CBG. So cannabigerol is sort of the precursor to CBD and THC. Um, normally the plant doesn't stop there. It goes on to the others. It's a high throughput system, but there are varieties of uh, cannabis available now that are rich in CBG, especially in the Northwest. It's sort of a regional specialty. Um, CBG is a really interesting agent. Um, it seems to have strong anti-anxiety properties without being sedating or addictive. So it's quite distinct from say the benzodiazepines, Valium, mm. et cetera, um, that are commonly used to treat such disorders. Additionally, it uh, works on a receptor called TRPM8, TRPM8, uh, which uh, makes it a candidate for treatment of prostate cancer. Um, so those are just a couple of things that we know it, it, it does. And, um, you know, it hasn't gotten the attention that it deserves, I feel. And did you say anything about psychoactivity? Uh, well, it's anti-anxiety, so it's psychoactive, but it's but not- non-intoxicating. Exactly. Let's, we should emphasize that distinction. So, so THC is intoxicating and psychoactive. CBD and CBG are psychoactive because they impact anxiety, but they're not intoxicating because they won't get you high. Exactly. Sure. Okay. Uh, Next, THCB. Yeah. So THCB is like THC, but with the three carbon side chain instead of five. So it's called a pentyl cannabinoid. It is found in small amounts in uh, cannabis varieties from Southern Africa, but usually very small amounts. Um, THCV can be selectively bred um, and has a very interesting profile. At low concentrations, it is a um, neutral antagonist of the CB1 receptor. So it reduces hunger it's been shown in some animal and human studies to reduce factors associated with the metabolic syndrome, you know, the precursor to development of type 2 diabetes. Hmm. Um, additionally, it's anticonvulsant, uh, works on neuropathic pain. Um, so really interesting agent. And it, it could be a useful dietary uh, agent. Uh, because it doesn't have the side effects that were associated with drugs like Rimonabat, SR141716A, which was briefly on the market in Europe and got yanked. Uh, it works differently. It's what's called an inverse agonist. It actually lowers endocannabinoid tone and made people anxious and depressed and in a few instances, even suicidal. Um, THCV won't do that. Um, so it pretends to be much safer. CBN is cannabinol. That's a non-enzymatic oxidative breakdown product of THC. So if you have 
cannabis that's been sitting around in the sun uh, for a couple of years, um, its THC will turn into CBN. Now, the good things about it are much more stable. Um, It's a quarter of the potency, quarter of the psychoactivity of uh, THC. Uh, Now, it's really advocated uh, on the street as a great agent for sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, it's not any better for sleep than THC is really. Um, It's sort of in a gray area now where a lot of companies are using it because they think it's not expressly forbidden under the Hemp Act. Uh, um, But you know, like all the other cannabinoids, it's schedule one, if you ask the DEA or the FDA. So it's okay until it isn't. And there could be a clamp down if uh, the feds ever were so inclined. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I, you know, I would tend to say that CBN is not magical compared to anything else. Um, But again, it, it may have a safety factor being a quarter of the potency of uh, THC. So CBN is intoxic. It can actually get you high. Yeah. Again, given enough of it, but. Gotcha. So that rounds out most of the, the minor cannabinoids that you hear about. What's your perspective, you know, given your background on the most appropriate legal status for cannabis legalization, decriminalization, a different schedule. What what do you think is the best uh, regulation approach from a from a consumer health standpoint? Nothing makes sense except descheduling. Um, it doesn't fit in uh, the schedules. Um, I should remind people historically in 1970 when the Controlled Substances Act was was formulated, cannabis was put in Schedule One as a forbidden drug that was dangerous, addictive, with no recognized medical use, only as a placeholder, subject to the results from the Schaefer Commission that scientifically studied the issue. They came out saying that cannabis should be decriminalized and that it should be available medically. But that was ignored and vetoed by President Nixon, another thing that we have to thank him for. Um, and it's 50 years later now, and it still hasn't changed. Um, so the Schedule One status is a historical aberration, not based on science. Um, right. <laughs> so that's what I have to say about that. Um, downscheduling to Schedule Two isn't going to solve anything. It might make research a little bit easier, but Schedules two through five are designed really for FDA approved drugs Mm -hmm. um, and then having controls about the prescriptions and how often they can be refilled, et cetera. It really does not fit. I would like to see cannabis regulated uh, in a way that would be similar to alcohol, but perhaps even more stringent uh, again. Um, so that the consumer has access to uh, biochemical profiles and all the safety profiles that were previously discussed, Mm -hmm. Uh, pesticides, heavy metals, microbiological assays, et cetera. Um, I also think that uh, people should have the right to grow their own. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the likelihood that people are going to get into trouble that way is... um, 
relatively minor. Um, someone who's going to take the care to do it. Um, uh, I, it's a plant. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a pernicious plant. Uh, it's not innately evil. Evil is a function of human behavior, not of plants. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's my viewpoint on the situation. Interesting. Do you consume cannabis at all yourself? Uh, well, that's the question you're not supposed to ask, but it's 2021. Uh, it's 2021. My standard answer for years has been the following. Yes, I smoked cannabis in college. Unlike some, I inhaled deeply, frequently, and with malice aforethought. Uh, but that was a long time ago. Uh, truthfully, uh, people would be shocked. I think that most people think that I'm high all the time. <laughs> um, uh, I use cannabis rarely. I guess the context would not be considered recreational. Um, uh, you know, when there's a medical problem that requires it, uh, yeah, I'll try things. Um, but it's uh, a rare event. Um, <laughs> right. Interesting. So what, um, research wise, what do you think some of the biggest unanswered questions are slash what, what's some of the more interesting research that you, you know is going on or, or, or happening soon? Uh, hard one. I can't give away trade secrets here, but let, let me talk about well, un- in, the, in the academic world. Sure. Unmet needs on terms of what cannabis is good for are really varied, but uh, clearly uh, psychiatric areas, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, um, they need more attention. Also, the whole area of obstetrics and gynecology. Back in the 19th century, cannabis was used extensively for such problems, uh, but it's been sort of a forbidden area. Uh, Paternalistic society has thought that women are too weak or at risk um, to consider cannabis-based medicines, and it's nonsense. Um, when there's a problem, you use what is work and what's what works and what's proven safe. And the same should apply to cannabis-based products. Interesting. What about is there any research going on related to the entourage effect where people are testing combinations of compounds in humans? Sure. I mentioned the studies underway at Johns Hopkins, and there are a lot of lab studies, either um, purely bench science or animal work, uh, to look at this. But we already have very salient examples. I mentioned uh, the study of CBD and the change of the biphasic dose response to a linear response. Mm -hmm. Um, In clinical medicine, um, study done... uh, prior decade, um, there was a high THC extract, um, Sativax with THC and CBD extracts, and placebo that was looked at for cancer pain. And um, the high THC extract and placebo didn't differentiate. But uh, with just the addition of CBD as Sativax, there was a statistically significant improvement uh, in the people who experienced a 30% decrease in pain over the course of a couple of weeks. So it's a demonstration of synergy or entourage Mm -hmm. uh, in humans. Um, So 
you know, there are data out there, the more on the way. Um, again, my physician colleagues are going to require your standard randomized controlled trials to be uh, compelling, uh, but they're on the way. Interesting. Um, I don't want to take too much more of your time. We are coming up close to two hours here. Are there any other areas do you think we didn't dive into or any final thoughts that you would leave for people that are interested in medical cannabis? Uh, well, it's a very deep field. Um, you know, one of the things that attracted me to it is uh, combines uh, multiple disciplines. I've had to learn some botany, biochemistry, pharmacology. Um, yeah, so there's always something for everybody who's uh, of a scientific inclination. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd encourage people to delve in, educate yourself. Awesome. Well, Dr. Ethan Russo, uh, thank you for your time. And I look forward to talking to you again at some point. Thank you. 